I would ask you to please turn with me in your Bibles to our text today, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at chapter 9 and verses 38 to 41. So Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 41. Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 41. Brothers and sisters, please then, if you would, hear with me the, the reading of God's Word. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a a cup of water to drink because you belong to me will by no means lose his reward. Thus far as the ring of God's word. Last week, brothers and sisters, we looked at verses 30 to 37. And what we seen was that the apostles fell into the the sin of pride and of self-ambition which resulted in this argument between them about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. Right? And Jesus used that as an, as an opportunity to continue to disciple them and teach them a very vital and important truth that is true for all Christians. And that is that we must be emptying ourselves of pride. We must be emptying ourselves of self-ambition and we must be being filled up with humility Right, in order that we might reflect our Savior. And so what does Jesus tell them? Right, He says to them, if anyone would be first, then he must be last of all and servant to all. And now in our, our verses today, we're not entirely certain if they, if they follow right after verse 37 or not. There are some that hold that they do, that, that what John is doing here in our text is really responding to having his sin exposed. And so he's trying to kind of save face and say, yes, Jesus, we are guilty of this, but look what we have done for you. There are others who, who believe that this occurred you know, days following, but regardless of the timing of this statement, one thing is clear, and it is that the apostles have kind of stepped in it again, haven't they? They've, they've messed up, right? They've, they've done what they should not have done, even though at this moment they, they believe that they have done the right thing, don't they? Right? This is why John brings it up to Jesus. Right? He thinks that they have done the right thing in, in stopping this man from casting out demons in Jesus' name. And so John is probably thinking, oh, the Lord is going to praise us if we tell Him that we've done this. He's going to be pleased with us. But they quickly find out that they have made a, a great mistake right? and have sinned against their Lord. And as we will discover today, that their manner of sin is one that, brothers and sisters, is common to us all. Now, I'm not sure if anyone here enjoys history, and in particular, Baptist history, the best kind of history, right? But if you, if you are, if you know anything about Baptist history, then you would be familiar with a group called the Landmarkers. Okay? And the Landmarkers were a 19th century a Southern Baptist kind of group. And uh, this group, it was known for their innovation of what was called landmarkism, right? This doctrine called landmarkism. 
And this group then took their name from two Old Testament passages that, that warn us against removing landmarks or warn us against removing property markers. And so they, they take this name and they apply it to themselves and they called on other Baptists in the SBC to recognize along with them the proper boundaries of the faith and to guard Baptist doctrine from the non-Baptist. And on its face, that doesn't sound necessarily wrong, right? We want to protect sound doctrine. We want to protect Baptist doctrine, which we think the Scriptures teach. But what was wrong with this is is that they went even further than this and they believed that the only true churches were Baptist churches. And that is why it must be guarded. That is why we must put these property markers or these landmarkers around our doctrine. Right? They, they believe that no true church deviated from the Baptist model. And so essentially they were saying that, that heaven is only filled with those who are Baptists here on earth. Now this group had great influence and sway in the 19th century. In fact, they caused a lot of controversy and division within the SBC. But they usually, or they, they, they ended up fading kind of away in the early part of the 20th century. But what we see here, I think, and what I've described is perhaps something that we all have uh, dealt with and experienced, right? Perhaps you have gone to churches in your past. Perhaps you've grown up in churches that put boundary markers around certain doctrines or or, or certain things that they find important. And they treat anyone who doesn't view those same things as almost like they're outside the kingdom, right? The problem, though, with this way of thinking is that many times it divides believers along lines that it shouldn't. Right? Many times, what does that do? It causes churches right, to, to make people feel unwelcome and they're unfriendly when someone comes into their, their body and doesn't appear to fit the, the mold or to think the way that they think a Christian ought to. Now, don't get me wrong, there are certainly things that we ought to be dividing over, brothers and sisters, but minor issues that usually amount to nothing more than Christian liberty issues, we should not be dividing over. Many of you have probably heard sometime in your Christian life about kind of first order doctrine, second order doctrine, third order. And I think this is a good way to distinguish between those things that we ought to be dividing and separating over and those things that we ought not to be. And so those first order doctrines, those, those core tenets of the faith, right? The, the Trinity, the person of Christ, right? That He is truly man and truly God. The Gospel, right? These are things that we cannot give way to. These are things that every believer must believe or else we can't have fellowship. Because that person presumably is not even a believer. But second order issues are those areas that good Christians can disagree on still see each other as brothers and sisters in the faith, and yet respectfully divide. These are issues like baptism and church government, I think, that fall into this category. Right? These are issues big enough that it's hard for us to do church together. But that doesn't mean that because we have to divide and do church separately that they lack Christ or that we lack Christ. Right? We might think of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in this manner, right? They are in the Lord's kingdom, even though they get baptism and church government wrong. Right? Now you have those, those third order doctrines. Many people would put eschatology right into that, into that group. And, and so third order doctrines say that those are things that we can disagree on and belong to the same body and, and fellowship. Those things shouldn't be things that divide God's people. Right? But the problem is, is that many times people take those 
third order doctrines or they take Christian liberty issues and they, they raise them up to first order issues and they, they make them a litmus test for fellowship between the saints. I think this is the mistake that the apostles are making in our text today and one which Jesus must now correct as He continues to bring along and disciple these apostles, getting them ready to be leaders in the church. And so it's with this in mind that we're going to dive into our text today and look to unpack the mistake or the, 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 really the sin the apostles make and then look to the teaching and the encouragement that Jesus provides for that manner of thinking. And so we're going to do this then under three points. Okay? So the first point then is, is misplaced zeal. Misplaced zeal. The second point is that there are only two sides. There are only two sides. And the third point is the promise to those on Christ's side. The promise to those on Christ's side. So point one, misplaced zeal. Now the Apostle John opens our text today by, by telling Jesus, right? We, we saw this man who was, who was casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. But the important part of what John says really comes at the, at the end of what he says here. Because it's at the end of what he says that demonstrates to us John's motives in stopping this man. And what were his motives for stopping this man? He says because they were not following us. Right? He didn't say it's because this man was blaspheming your name, Lord. He didn't say we stopped him to correct him because he was suffering from error. No, he says we stopped him because he wasn't a part of us. He wasn't following with us. One thing I think we continue to see as the disciples grow is that they are constantly making Jesus' mission about themselves, aren't they? If we remember from, from chapter 8, right? remember when Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him after he tells him he must suffer and die. Right? It's because Peter didn't want to suffer that same fate. Right? What do we look at, at last week as Jesus reminds them of his suffering and death? They are arguing about what rank they are going to have in the kingdom of God, right? It's all about themselves. And today we're told they, they stopped this man from teaching because he shouldn't be doing it because he wasn't with us, right? You see, their minds are in the, the wrong place again. They're not thinking about what glorifies our Messiah, but what they're thinking about is what, it, what is it that helps and hinders us? And if we are honest with ourselves, I think that all of us are oftentimes guilty of this very same sin. Right, think about it. What happens when someone maybe mistreats you? They're, they're rude or disrespectful to you. Right, we know what glorifies God, right? To not repay evil for evil. Right? To, to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us. And in doing so, what happens? You, you heap coals upon their head as you display the love of Christ. And it even gives an opportunity perhaps for them to, to come and to, and to be interested in Christ, saying, oh, this is the one who you, who you serve, who, who treats others like this. But oftentimes, brothers and sisters, what is our response when we are treated rude and disrespectfully? It is to treat them back rude and disrespectfully. And why is that? Why do you think that is? Because just like the apostles, we are more concerned about our own honor and glory than we are about the honor and glory of Christ. This is what they're guilty of here. They didn't stop to think that Christ right now, is, He was being honored. Right? The Gospel was being advanced by what this man was doing. 
They were just upset that someone else was doing it other than themselves, who wasn't a part of their group. This is the same problem that we just seen from the, from the landmarkers, wasn't it? Right? If you weren't a part of our group, then you were outside the faith. You had no right to preaching the gospel. You had no right to administer baptism. You had no right to administer the Lord's table. Right? Today, we can think oftentimes that our own denomination is the only one that can do anything good in this world. But when we're talking about the gospel, which is the central issue, the, the most important issue in all the world, when life and death is on the line, we must not look down upon anyone who proclaims the gospel because of a denomination that they're in. Instead, we ought to be thankful for them. That they share in the same gospel, that they share in the same Christ, that they share in the same spirit, that they have the same zeal to reach the lost. This was Paul's mind frame, was it not? You remember we covered Philippians. And in Philippians, right, Paul is imprisoned, is he not? And in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes that there are those who are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. Right? They were proclaiming Christ, he said, out of selfish ambition in order that they might hurt Paul as he is imprisoned. Right? People were preaching for their own benefit and for the detriment of Paul. And yet, what was Paul's response to that? Was it stop them because they're not a part of our group? No. Paul says in verse 18, what then? Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. This is the way that we ought to think as well. The, the gospel wasn't just handed down to Baptists. And so we ought to rejoice when our brothers and sisters in Christ proclaim the gospel. And as God is glorified through it, and as sinners are being saved by it, whether they are Baptist or Lutheran or Presbyterian. Now, in addition to this kind of tribal mentality that we see amongst the disciples today, I believe what we... Another reason why we see them stopping this man from casting out demons was for a more selfish reason even than that. And that was out of envy. They were trying to stop this man out of, out of envy. Remember, it was just two weeks ago when we looked at verses 14 to 29. You remember that argument that took place between the scribes and the apostles. Because why? They failed to be able to cast demons out of a young boy. And so they were shamed. They were disgraced before the crowd. And now these men who lost everything, who gave up everything to follow after Jesus, they gave up their life to, to go city to city with Him, were unable to do this. And that this man who, is, who has not given up all that they have was able to do what they could not. And so they envied Him. But this just reveals to us the Apostles' heart attitude, doesn't it? Right, last week it was pride. This week it's envy. You see, their zeal in stopping this man was misplaced because their reason for it was themselves. Right? If their heart was in the right place, what they would have done is they would have went up to, to Jesus and said, what do you think about this man? Do you approve of what he's doing? Or should we stop him? But rather, out of envy, they went to stop him themselves. But envy is a work of the flesh, as Paul tells us. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 21. Envy is a sin, and it is a sin that not only affects the unbeliever, but it affects even believers. We see this throughout the Bible, don't we? We have examples of both. 
In Mark chapter 15 and verse 10, we're told that Pilate knew the chief priest delivered Jesus up because they envied him. Do you see what envy does to men? Right? It caused them to, to, to deliver Jesus up to be crucified and, and killed. But it also, envy is also prevalent within believers as well. I would ask that you turn with me in your Bibles to the, to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers in chapter 11. As we see another example of, of envy amongst God's people. Numbers chapter 11, starting in verse 16. We read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you might not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before Him saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am number six hundred thousand on foot and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered seventy men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the Spirit that was on him, and put it on the seventy elders. And soon as the Spirit rested on him, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad, and the other named Medad. And the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth said, My Lord, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them? And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Moses here sarcastically asks, doesn't he? Why, why are you so concerned with them? Is it because you're, you're jealous for my sake, Joshua? And the obvious answer was no. Joshua was envious of them. right? Because they had the spirit to prophesy and he did not. Right? He was jealous of them. Right? And he was also mad that they were not a part of the group. The group who was outside the tent. They were inside the tent where they shouldn't have been. 
And how often are, are each one of us guilty of this very same sin in our own lives? Right? That we are envious of others. That we are envious of the giftings that God has given to others. How often are we like Joseph's brothers who envy those who appear to have perhaps special favor from the Lord in some way? Right? Envy is natural to each and every one of us here. It's not something hard for us to practice, is it? It's easy for us to, to envy the gifts that others have. When instead, what we ought to be doing is being thankful for the gifts that God has given to each one of you. Thankful for your own gift. Cultivating your own gift. Using your own gifts for the sake of Christ, for the glory of God, and for the benefit of His church. And yet, how many of us right, spend all day, instead of cultivating our own gifts, worrying about and wanting the gifts that others have, envying what they have, Right? There are plenty of people who sit in pews across the world in churches. They're usually probably men who would look at the minister and say to themselves, man, I should be up there. I, I could do so much better than he. Some of you nod your head right now. But that's sin though. Right? All joking aside, that is, that is sin. Right? The minister has been placed there by God. He has been gifted by God. He has been brought success for His task by God. And so who are we to, to question the will of God? And whom He gifts with what gift? Who are you to question the God? To, uh, who are you to question God with a the, with the gift that He has granted to you? That is something that children do. What happens? You, you buy a child a gift and what do they say right away? That's not the one I wanted. I wanted that one instead. Don't they? But they don't recognize that a gift isn't something that they deserve. They don't get to choose a gift. A gift is something that is bestowed upon them. And we ought to see our giftings in that same way. We don't get to choose what our gift is. And so we ought to be thankful that God has given us a gift that we do not deserve. That we ought to be content with that gift and satisfied with that gift and use that gift for God's glory. Also, what we need to be doing, no matter what our sin is that we are guilty of, is we need to be deadening that sin by practicing the opposite grace. Okay? We need to practice the opposite grace of whatever sin you are in. And so, if you are a liar, then you must every day be practicing truthfulness. Right? If you have hate in your heart for your brothers and sisters, you must be practicing daily love for your brothers and sisters. Right? If you envy your brothers and sisters, what you ought to be practicing is thanking God every day for the gifts that they have. This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. It means thanking God for the good gifts that He gives to others. It means praying to God for their success in using that gift for God's glory. But what is Jesus' response to this misplaced zeal that the apostles showed? Well, this takes us to point number two then, which is that Jesus points out to them that there are, there are only two sides in this matter. And so look with me please in verse 39. Jesus says, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Right? Jesus is telling the apostles that the true issue isn't whether they belong to our group of twelve 
But the true issue is, is if you are for Christ or if you are against Christ. Right? Is the answer to that question whether you are for Him or against Him that determines, right? Whether you are friend or foe to Christ. And because this man was casting out and healing in Jesus' name, it makes clear to us that he was, he was a friend of Christ. And so Jesus is telling the apostles, don't stop him. He is not against us. In fact, he is working with us and he is working for us. In saying this though, that he is not against us, is for us. Right? What Jesus is pointing out though is that there are only two sides in the battle, right? There is for and there is against. There is Christ and there is not Christ. And we see this this reality played out, don't we, from the very beginning of Scripture. Right after the fall, Genesis verse three, chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. You see, there are only two offsprings. Right? There are only two offsprings. You are Christ or you are saints. But we must beware, there is no neutrality in the matter. Right? Either you are for Christ or you are against Him. And if you are indifferent to Christ, then likewise you are not for Him, which means you are against Him. Right? At the, at the end of this age, when Christ returns, there are only going to be two peoples standing there, right? Believers and non-believers. Right? Believers on the right, unbelievers on the left. But what is also important to see and that I want you to highlight for you is how, how Jesus says the the one who is not against us is for us. Right? The one who is not against us is for us. See there how he doesn't say the one who is against me. But he uses the word us. Which is to say that those who oppose believers likewise oppose Christ. Right? And we see this throughout the world, don't we? That Christians are, are persecuted. Right? Christians are jailed. They're, they're prevented from meeting and worshiping God. But in attacking us, they must know that they are truly attacking Christ. Right? You cannot say that you have Christ, that you are for Christ, and yet seek to silence His people. And is that not a warning cry to our own nation? Right? To our own government, to our own leaders. Right? Many of them, before the cameras, right, say that they are believers, say they are Christians. You will find them in churches on Sunday. And yet they fight for and put policies in place to silence Christians, to marginalize Christians, to shut up the gospel. But they must know in attacking Christians, they are attacking God and no good can come from that, can it? This is why Jesus then tells them, don't stop this man. It was because it's obvious this man was for Christ. It was obvious because he could not be doing what he was doing unless permitted by Christ unless given the ability to cast out this demon from these people. And so Jesus tells the apostle, he isn't an enemy to be stopped, but rather he's a friend as he proclaims the gospel and casts out demons. And in doing so, what he is doing is, is verifying my message to all. You see, brothers and sisters, there is no, there is no middle ground with the gospel. Or either you receive it, you accept it, and you proclaim it, or you reject it, and you deny it, and you are silent to it. But this man is, is casting out demons. He's proclaiming the gospel. And in doing so, what he's doing is he's forcing those people who are confronted by the message to make the choice, am I for Christ or am I against Christ? 
Right? He's spreading the good news. This man is not speaking evil of Jesus. He's not teaching heresy, but he's openly standing with Christ. And so Jesus is teaching them and us likewise that there ought to be unity amongst all saints who bear the name of Christ, no matter what denomination, or no matter what group you belong to. We aren't to go picket outside of an evangelical church who's preaching the gospel because they aren't Baptists. Right? But instead, we are to be united with them in our pursuit for saving souls and in glorifying God. He is also teaching them that there is nothing that we ought to allow to stand in the way of preaching the gospel to all the nations. Right? There is nothing that we should allow to stop people from hearing the gospel, which is what they need to hear in order to come to faith in Christ. We should not put anything in the way of the salvation of souls. We are to put aside petty differences. We are to, to put aside those things that might hinder the Gospel. We are to put aside even secondary and tertiary matters if that means stopping the Gospel from going forth because it is the Gospel that is central. It is the Gospel that people need to hear in order that they might come to faith in Christ. And in preaching the Gospel what these other denominations, what these other churches are demonstrating is that they, like us, are also on Christ's side. And so we should not try to stop them or be a barrier to them. But in fact, we should be praying for them, encouraging them, supporting them. This then leads us to our third and final point then, brothers and sisters, which is the promise then that, that Jesus gives to those that are His. Or the promise He gives to those who are on His side. Please look with me at verse 41. Jesus says, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You see, we see Jesus has already told them, you're not to envy. Are you not to envy other believers? You're not to, to stop someone who is proclaiming the gospel in my name because he's not a, a part of our group. He's not following with us. Instead, we ought to be united, he says, as brothers and sisters in Christ as we as we tarry on toward that goal, the same goal. But yet here in verse 41 now, Jesus now provides motivation for why they ought to be offering this kindness and love to others. And why is that? What is that motive Jesus gives to supply us the desire to help others? Well, He tells us in our text, it is because they belong to Jesus. It is because, He says, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water because you belong to Jesus, because you belong to Christ, He will in no way lose His reward. Right? Paul echoes this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially those of the household of faith. Right? The church in general is, is filled with people who come from all sorts of backgrounds. Is that not true? Right? We have a variety of different likes and dislikes. We are very different. And because of that, many times we do not talk to one another. We do not engage with one another. We do not invite someone over to our homes because we say, ah, I don't think we're going to mesh that well together. Whether it's because we're older, they're younger. We have children, they don't. And so what happens, especially in, in bigger churches, what you see is, you see groups and cliques start to form, don't you? Like all people over 65 are in one group. You know, young marrieds in one group, people, older people with kids in one group, singles in another group. 
And these people only fellowship with each other. Right? They only show kindness and, and pray and do good works to their own particular group. But what Jesus is, is showing us here, He's giving us a great reason to stop that way of thinking and to stop that way of acting. Because what He's teaching us in this text here is that we need to better see Jesus in all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we do that, right, we will start to interact with those who maybe we usually wouldn't hang out with, but we do so because they belong to Jesus. And if we thought more like this, we would get out of our comfort zone. We would engage with others. We would invite people to our homes. We would sit down and talk to people that we usually wouldn't associate in church because they belong to Jesus. We need to start seeing each other how Jesus sees one another. That is precious in His sight. We need to start seeing each other through the lens which God sees one another. And that is through the eyes of great love. And I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, when we start seeing each other like that, good works are going to start to pour out from you towards one another. And then Jesus promises that when we do good works, or when good works are shown to us, that we can be confident that our reward awaits us in heaven. We will not lose our reward. And we can be so sure of that because Jesus emphasizes the reality of this when He says, For truly I say to you, or verily I say to you. Right? What He's saying in that phrase there is you can bank on it. It's a guarantee. It will come to pass. It, it will happen. Right? That those who do good works to you because you belong to Me will surely have their reward in heaven. Right? Those who do good works because you belong to Me will in no way lose the reward. And why is that? It's because those good works that they show to the believer right, testifies to their true and saving faith. It testifies to the Spirit indwelling them. It testifies to the fruit of the Spirit being worked out in their lives. That they love God's people and they show good works to God's people. And so Jesus, through this promise, is encouraging His apostles to good works. Now, the end for which we do good works is always the glory of God. That is the end for our good works. But what we also see here, and what Jesus, I think, is teaching us, is that it's not wrong to also look to the reward that we have awaiting us in heaven through good works. That is not to be ever the primary reason. But it's not wrong to consider the reward as well. Now, it's important to emphasize, whenever we talk about good works, and rewards and faith, right? It's always good to emphasize that the reward is not given because of works, right? But the reward is given by virtue of God's promise to us made in Christ. Not for our work, but for the worker who is Christ. So that by faith in Him, we receive what is promised, not because we have earned it. This differentiation is extremely important and we all must get it. Because I tell you now, there are those of you here, I'm certain, listen to and read people who fumble this terribly. You would be surprised at the, at the names of those who, who fumble this. They are popular preachers who, who teach a sort of double justification, right? Which is not orthodox at all. It's a deviation from the Reformation faith. And so what they teach is that there's an initial justification by faith. 
but that there's a, a final justification by works or an ultimate justification by works. I'll quote one very influential Baptist pastor that every single one of us know here. and You would be surprised to hear who it was. But this pastor said, are you justified by faith alone? Yes. Finally saved by faith alone? No. Do you not understand that that destroys grace? That turns the covenant of grace into the covenant of works. And by works shall no man be justified. I'm, this is why I'm thankful for men like R.C. Sproul who were around you know, while he was living. He actually dealt with this, this exact example that I'm giving you. He, he argued against that, those pastors and this, this type of teaching that has kind of become a, a movement of sorts within Reformed theology. And R.C. Sproul said this in, in arguing against this view. He says, what's the matter with the traditional view that good works are necessary for sanctification? That they're necessary as evidence for authentic faith? Right? We acknowledge that our reward in heaven will be distributed according to works, but not by merit, which imposes an obligation upon God to reward them to us. But rather it's by a gracious act of God, as Augustine says, crowning His own works. You see, brothers and sisters, our good works are just, a, are just evidence to us and to others that we belong to Christ, right? They are evidence of, of God working in our lives. Right? It's, it's evidence of authentic faith. But it's on the basis of the promise of God in Christ that we are rewarded. Even the good that we do, remember Jesus says in John 15.5, Right? You can do no good apart from me. Right? Everything we do that is good is attributed back to God. Right? We can't do anything good apart from Him. Right? We are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. It is by faith and because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection and that alone that we will receive our inheritance. Understand this. A work that merits anything is a debt and is no longer grace. And so let us all do good works one to another, but understand the proper place of works in our lives. Let us continue to see Christ in each other. Let us be motivated to bring glory to God as we look forward to the reward that awaits us, but that has already been secured by Christ and His work. And so let us rest in the promises of of Christ. Let us receive them by faith. Let us proclaim, whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of God's grace and the promise that He has given to us in our one and only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We are thankful that You have given to us spiritual wisdom in order that we might be able to comprehend Your Word. We thank You for Your Holy Spirit today who has taught us. We pray, Father, that He would continue throughout the week to impress the truth of this message upon us, to implant it deep within our heart that it might take up roots and that we might not forget it. We pray, Father, that You would forgive us for our sin of envy, that You would teach us to see Christ in one another, to pray for one another, 
to be excited for the gifts that each brother and sister in Christ has and be thankful for the gift that you have given to us. Likewise, Father, we are thankful that because of Christ Jesus' work and His work alone, we know that our reward awaits us in heaven. And so, Father, we ask that you would motivate us unto good works, not so that we might obtain our inheritance, Father, but that we might glorify you, that we might be obedient to your word, and that we might show ourselves to be true saints here on earth. And so, Father, we come before you this morning and we we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.